UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Thou shalt not kill, says the Bible. And so the historical attitude of the church towards things like abortion and euthanasia have been very clear. And many of us would say, quite right so. But as the call to amend UK legislation on assisted suicide is, it seems, almost perpetually in front of Parliament, some are wondering if it's simply a matter of time before a different perspective is embraced by society just as the law on abortion was. So what is our message? What is our stand in the face of this? How do we keep our voice relevant and compassionate? And what is our theology for people who are facing a drawn-out, painful, and maybe even degrading death? If the church was able to develop a theology of a just war to validate the taking of human life, accepting perhaps that things are not always black and white, is there a substantive difference in the shades of grey for someone facing a terminal diagnosis? Do we also need a theology of a just end-of-life experience? The night before my mum died, she was distressed, in pain, demented by her situation. And in truth, it was awful for her, my dad and all our family. A trauma that in many ways obscured for many years the truth that she was stepping into glory in Jesus that night. And that it was a positive thing where one day we would be reunited. Now, our experience contributed to the formation of a gold standard on palliative care and end-of-life drug provision, so you might say it's different now. And for some that I have sat with, as they have been facing the end, undoubtedly, it is. But for some, well, the protocol doesn't always work. The resources aren't always there. So is it really unreasonable, unbiblical, to allow people to die on their own terms, with dignity rather than ravaged by disease, to have a choice, and especially perhaps where eternity is not assured and the memories of now are all people have, the opportunity to create a wholesome goodbye. That is our topic for this week's Life Issues podcast, this week entitled Thou Shalt Not Kill. And my guest is James Mildred from CARE. James, welcome to Life Issues. Great to be with you. So is it unreasonable, do you think? I mean, the imagery around a just war and the validation of taking of life in that sort of situation, isn't there a precedent there? Is there that much of a difference with assisted suicide? I always think it's it's very important to understand the, the context in which the just war uh, theology emerged. It, it wasn't done with any uh, great relish. It was done reluctantly um, and with a lot of uh, work to explain that the historic Christian position was very much still that even a just war was a tragedy. Uh, even a just war was something that was only done as a last resort in very, very particular circumstances. Uh, a just war theology was primarily focused on uh, the defense of nations uh, and also addressing human rights abuses in other parts of the world. 
I think the difference between a just war theology and a suggestion that we have a, a just uh, death theology for assisted suicide, for example, is that if we go down the road of changing the law when it comes to uh, end of life, when it comes to uh, patients who have a terminal illness, the ripple effects of doing so are huge. I mean, we're talking about one of the biggest changes to historical medical practice that you could possibly ever do. For, for centuries, medicine has operated on a very simple but profound basis, and that is that the job of the doctor, the job of the nurse, is to preserve life wherever possible. Um, and I think to upend that and to legally empower doctors who, after all, you, you look to them for care and for health assistance and for assistance for living um, is, a, is a fundamental rupture uh, in how we do medicine. Um, and so I don't think that there is a case to be made for a theology of a just assisted suicide. And I, I think that uh, for everything I've just said, but also because in the Bible, we, we have only a couple of examples of suicide. Um, Saul, for example, King Saul, uh, when the Philistines surrounded him. And although the narrator doesn't make a moral judgment in the text on what Saul does, the, the absence of a commendation, the absence of a, a recognition that he did what was necessary um, is telling. And then you get to Judas, who killed himself after betraying the Lord Jesus and was overcome with remorse. In, in both instances, there's no positivity in the text at all. Um, and you add that with a, a biblical theology of the value of life. And I think um, it, it suddenly brings home to us that when it comes to uh, end-of-life care and assisted suicide, because of its impact on the, the most vulnerable in our society, you would have to work incredibly hard uh, to come up with a biblical justification for legally empowering doctors to help patients kill themselves. And we'll come back to some of those different things, just unpick them a little bit more in a moment or two. But is it really valid for us to continue to raise a voice against this? I mean, all right, yeah, of course it's valid for us to do it, and the reasons why, as I say, we'll come back to you. But is there really any point? Are we not a little Canute-like shouting at the tide to go back? Because all around the world, we see examples of where assisted dying has been put into place. There are all sorts of, and there is this continual, perpetual pressure, it feels, on Parliament to discuss it, to consider private members' bill after private members' bill that want to push the boundaries back on this. I mean, what is the current state of debate here in the UK, and are we fighting a losing battle? I think, I mean, I, your, your assessment of how it feels uh, is, I think, spot on. It does feel like we are fighting against a, a huge tidal wave of public support for a change in the law. It, it feels like we're trying to push a really heavy stone back up a hill um, in terms of our opposition to it. But how it feels is often very disconnected to the reality. So uh, actually across the world, a minority of countries uh, allow assisted suicide and euthanasia. And they tend to be, uh, and this is typical, uh, very developed, wealthy nations uh, where it's allowed. So one of the criticisms that has rightly been levelled at uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia is that it's the prerogative of the rich. 
It's for people who can afford it. Um, and actually, the impact of it will be felt most by the most vulnerable. Um, and here in this country as well, it wasn't so long ago. It was only six years ago, uh, seven years ago, in 2015 in September, that the House of Commons debated and voted on an assisted suicide bill and rejected it, not just by a slim or tender margin, but by a whopping 118 majority. Um, and yet, even since then, it's only seven years ago, even since then, the, as you said, there's been more and more pressure. And I think the media tend to, the mainstream media tend to focus on uh, really, really traumatic cases. And that fuels that, that sense of, of growing uh, support for a law change when the reality, again, I think is you burrow more deeply into what's really going on. And you learn, for example, that when people are made aware of the key arguments against legalizing assisted suicide, um, the opinion polls that seem to suggest mass support, 80% plus support, suddenly the picture changes dramatically. And that support drops all the way down to about 43% in favor, 43% opposed. And you look at polling of uh, doctors who are most closely involved in end of life provision and care, they are by a whopping majority opposed to any change mm. in the law. And so the, the picture is not quite as clear cut as is sometimes presented. And in terms of where we are right now, uh, Westminster uh, Baroness Molly Meacher, who is the chair of Dignity in Dying, the foremost um, youth, euthanasia campaign group in the UK, has a private member's bill in the House of Lords. It passed its second reading a few months ago. Uh, it didn't pass with a vote because in the House of Lords, the convention is that at second reading, you don't divide, you don't vote, but bills will pass through automatically on the nod, it's called. And that's what happened. Um, that bill is now waiting in the queue for a committee stage, which is where you really burrow into the detail. You go through it line by line by line by line by line. And there's all these amendments that have been piled in to try to raise debate. Um, and so that's what's going on there. Then in Scotland, uh, we've not yet had the bill formally introduced, but Liam MacArthur, MSP, um, who's a Liberal Democrat member of the Scottish Parliament, has uh, held a public consultation that finished uh, last December um, on a new bill uh, before the Scottish Parliament that's virtually identical um, to the Baroness Molly Meacher one. So there's these two bits of legislation, one at Scot in Scotland and one at Westminster. It does have to be said that it sounds as though those who are in favour of assisted suicide or assisted dying, um, it does sound as though their PR company is working perhaps better than those who are not because the impression that's created and there have been some very famous headlines about the number of doctors who are now in favour of assisted dying the number of Christians that are now in favour of assisted dying and, and all those sorts of headlines do generate this sort of impression and I suppose play into the fact that it is a very emotive subject and most of us when confronted with someone who is living with extreme suffering or disabling medical conditions that are ultimately going to leave them dying in a painful and terrible way and there's the emotive language most of us look at that and think Oh, I, I wouldn't. You, you wouldn't put a dog through that. I wouldn't want to experience that myself. 
when you're actually there, it can be a very different kettle of fish. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as someone who has um, engaged in the media on this particular issue, it, it can feel like you're, you're turning up to a sword fight with a pen knife um, because the other uh, guest will have um, some powerful stories, just as you said, and there am I with facts and figures and evidence from other countries that have gone down the road of legalizing assisted suicide. And some truly awful things have happened as a result, but it does very much feel like you're you're talking a very different language. Mm. And it reminds me of um, the, the Scottish independence referendum, uh, which I was involved in. And, and the, the point is that the, the change side, the side that are saying, let's change the status quo, often have an advantage because from a media perspective, change is far more exciting than, than keeping things as they are. Um, I, I think that in recent months and years, there has been a greater endeavor by uh, organizations like CARE and many others who are uh, seeking to oppose assisted suicide to connect more with stories. Um, and so we've been involved with a campaign called uh, Better Way, which profiles a number of really powerful testimonies from people who have received high quality palliative care at the end of their life. And as you've said, and, and we'll talk about later, there, there is a problem there. Um, but these stories also from nurses and from clinicians who don't want the law to change and don't think that it should, it is one way of trying to reframe the debate of, of saying, actually, Yes, let's listen to stories because that's what we connect with in yes, our yes. narrative-driven culture. But let's make sure that we are giving due diligence, not just to the stories of someone who goes to Dignitas uh, and all that's connected with that, but let's also make sure we listen to the stories of people who are afraid of what might happen to them if the law changes. And it is just worth saying that uh, in every debate of the last 10, 20 years in this country, as far as I'm aware, there is not a single disability rights organization or campaign group that has ever campaigned for the law to change. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all opposed. There may be some who are neutral. There may be some who are hedging their bets, just not willing to nail their, their opinion to the mast, as it were. But by and large, you, you, you tend to find that, that people living with uh, disabilities, and um, particularly campaign groups that represent their interests, are very opposed to any change in the law. And that's because, and they'll say this very publicly, that's because they're the ones who will be most at risk from, from the culture that we will create if we change the law. And, and I must say that, that I, I myself, having campaigned on this, there are times when I read the very stories that you've referenced and that anyone listening to this, that you, you will have read as well, you'll have read in the media. There are times where I hear those stories and I have moments where I find myself going, would this really be such a bad thing? Um, which is quite something to almost admit, because yeah. you, you almost feel yeah. bad for admitting it. But that, that's just true. For me, what I, what I come back to is if you have a clear biblical theology of what it means to be human and where life comes from and how even in tremendous suffering, there can be great good that is done. And, and suffering, as a, particularly as a Christian, is never wasted. Um, if you have those things in place, I, I think you can begin to 
stand more confidently and respond even in your own heart to your own mind to the doubts that you might have in your in your own head um, when you read those stories you don't need to pretend that they're not emotive you don't need to pretend that they're not awful you can face that fully and yet still be unmoved in the sense of your theology doesn't need to change but moved in the sense that your heart yeah, goes out yeah. to these people yeah. it's so sad that that that's the place that they've got to i i I do sometimes wonder, Paul, if I'm honest with you, I don't really understand, and perhaps I should, but I, I don't really understand how you can ever be um, truly opposed to assisted suicide and euthanasia unless you are a, a Christian who loves and believes God's word. Because without that view of humanity um, that the Bible gives us, I'm almost tempted to say, well, why wouldn't you support this? Yes, yes. Why, why, mm. why wouldn't you pursue this? Because without God in the picture, we're just we're just chemicals. We're just we're just machines, and if the machine breaks, you you move it on. And so, I think the Christian worldview, the Christian understanding of the value of life, is is so important if we're going to stand firm against um, assisted suicide, euthanasia. And it is not just, I suppose, the worldview of an ethical perspective of humanity, but it is also the biblical perspective, isn't it? And and one of the things that you guys at CARE, care.org.uk, by the way, if you want to have a look at it while we are talking, one of the things that you are very clear about is that the the first foundation of your stance that Christians should oppose assisted suicide, assisted dying, whatever phrase we want to use, is because of biblical exposition, because of what the Bible says. Just draw out for it. We haven't got time to go into it all. But draw out for us some of the key points, biblically, that you stand on. Yeah, I mean, it starts with Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, the creation narrative, which is so exciting and gripping to read because really it's all about the power of God and what's the what's the greatest creative act that God uh, does and it's the second creative act on on the sixth day which is when he makes human beings in his image and immediately everything is elevated because image bearers are going to reflect God they're going to be like God in certain specific ways and because God is one and three Therefore, he's a relational God. Human beings made in his image carry that capacity for love, for relationship, for community. And so from there, you then add in um, the fact that, that humanity and human beings are uniquely valuable, um, that there is something distinct about humans uh, over everything else that God has made. So they are the thing uh, that God creates that is the most unique and the most God-like. And they were made to live forever and to have dominion over the earth. And then sin comes in and the consequence of sin is death and everything is broken. But human beings re retain the image of God. It's not as clear as it was. And it, it is broken, but it's still there. You go to Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You go to Psalm 8, that God made us a little lower than, in some translations, God himself, but crowned us with glory and honor. And you then go to, for example, the, the coming of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation. Nothing dignifies 
humanity more than the fact that God himself became an embryo in the womb and passed through a birth process like many of us and grew up just as we grew up. And, and that gives such weight to this idea that Jesus came as the ideal uh, human being because he was perfect in every way. Uh, that, that was what was supposed to happen at the very beginning. And then sin came in. So from that, you again, you're, you're, you're drawing out from what the Bible tells us, but the dignity of human life. And when you, when you finally add in the fact that again and again and again in the Bible, God is on the side of the vulnerable. He's on the side of the weak. He's on the side of the outcasts. And if you ally that, combine that with a clear understanding of the value of life, then practically what does that mean in the public square? Amongst other things, it means resisting any legislative attempts that would undermine the value of life and that would put pressure on the most vulnerable. That's why Christians historically campaign against modern slavery. It's why we care about how people in prostitution are treated. It's why we worry about online safety. It's why we care about what happens to pre-born babies and their mums. It's all coming from the same ground, the same foundation, and that, that applies to assisted suicide and euthanasia, that we believe and the evidence in real time, real world experience tells us that this is true, is that the legalization of assisted suicide and euthanasia does put pressure on the most vulnerable. So if God calls me to be on their side, I cannot support a law that will undermine their dignity, make them feel like a burden and, and make them feel like their life is pointless and worthless. I want to get alongside those very people and, and say to them with all the love that I can muster, it, even if your circumstances are horrendous, your, your value is not tied to your circumstance. Your you matter to God because he made you. Um, and you throw in God's sovereignty. He's the giver of life. He's the one who takes away life. And you also throw into the mix as well, I, I think the fact that, that we were made for God mm. um, and made to live in relationship with him. And you, you add all these things together, and I think that they're they are the main biblical anchor points for, for why care believes what we believe about uh, end of life. And, and I must stress that it's so easy for us, even at care, to talk only about what we're against. But given everything I've just said, for the same reason, we are for high quality uh, end of life care, for love, compassion, genuine compassion, uh, for people who are nearing the end of their life. And so we've got to make sure that we combine a rigorous opposition to assisted suicide and legalization of assisted suicide with just as rigorous a promotion of better investment in palliative care. Because that is a key point, isn't it? That we need to, if we are going to say to people, do not go down this road. If we're going to say to people, and and this applies, and the same argument has been applied around abortion and a whole host of other things. If we're going to say, follow a different path because there is good in God in this, even if you can't see it at this moment, we do need to then be willing to, as a society, actively promote and support, and here's the key word, maybe, invest in meaningful care and is there a fear that perhaps society has become a little too self-focused to actually 
really care enough to put the support in place to pr- give everybody the opportunity of a, in inverted commas, to steal a phrase, good, dignified death. Absolutely. I mean, we, we are a, a society and a culture that's so incredibly um, individualistic. Um, and with that is the commercialization of society as well. So we are individualistic. We care most about ourselves and we care most about what we can get out of life. Um, and the Christian uh, concept of community, the idea that we are interdependent upon other human beings, and with that, the idea of what's called the common good, um, that, that we all have a responsibility to curtail our own preferences if that serves the common good, um, I think is, is largely been lost. And that, I think, is partly why at the moment in this country, we have a crisis of um, an aging population, an epidemic of loneliness, of isolation, not, not helped by uh, recent lockdowns, though there are reasons why they were necessary. It's, it's just exacerbated an existing problem. Um, and with all of that, it is fertile soil for um, any change in the law to lead to huge pressure. Uh, on those very same people, the elderly, the sick, the frail, people who live by themselves, who who walk from their kitchen to their living room and and don't see anybody all day. Um, And so I think that the the other thing that's important for for Christians to remember is that we want to speak positively into that that Mm. culture by promoting uh, community, by promoting a vision of community in our local churches that's dynamic and sacrificial, the idea of living more for the benefit of others than for yourself. We want to demonstrate that in society because that is to show the practical love of Christ uh, to a watching world. But in amongst all of that, you know, we need to remember as Christians that we're building there on a really strong foundation all the way back to ancient times. It was Christians who were involved in setting up the first ever hospital in Rome, for example, that wasn't for military people, that was actually for the poor and the destitute. Uh, Christians have been involved in uh, healthcare initiatives over the centuries, and the hospice movement was pioneered by Dame Cicely Saunders, who herself was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was her Christian compassion that motivated her uh, to, to get that movement going. And so if hospices are to continue and to survive, they do need our generosity, they need our support financially, But we also need the government to uh, get involved by investing in end-of-life care, and in particular in the provision of palliative care, which is a a branch of of end-of-life care. And that's why, you know, at CARE, and I've got to be honest, I I don't think we have always done this as well or as much as we could or should, but we have supported uh, Baroness Finlay, for example, who is an expert in palliative care, and who has uh, tabled a number of private members' bills over the years to expand access to palliative care, to end the postcode lottery that means in some parts of the country, you'll get palliative care, no problem. But in other parts of the country, uh, you won't. And so to coin a phrase much beloved by our Prime Minister, wouldn't it be great if Boris Johnson, in his levelling up agenda, started talking about the levelling up of palliative care? That would would be an amazing thing. So I think we, we as Christians, we do need to... Uh, demonstrate what we are for by supporting the hospice movement and doing so proudly because it was Christianity and a Christian who pioneered. And and if you've ever had 
a family member or a friend who has been the recipient of uh, amazing hospice care. I mean, it is, that's how you give dignity uh, to someone at the end of their life. That's how you care for someone at the end of their uh, end of their life. We, we just had a, uh, a lady in my church. Um, she passed away a few months ago and she went to um, Trinity Hospice in Clapham uh, in London, where uh, the former Archbishop of York's mother also was cared for uh, many years ago. And Eileen's experience was fantastic in that she was loved and cared for by people who had never met her before. Um, they just loved her. And her husband, they'd been married for 68 years, and he publicly could profess to the quality of care that she received. And her sons talked about how good it was, and the pastor at my church witnessed it firsthand as well. Now, that should be available yes. everywhere. Yes, uh, That's the point. That, that that's what we're aiming for. That's what we need to get to. Um, and, and huge credit to not just Trinity Hospice, but to so many hospices who just do an amazing job. And it it's emotionally draining work in many ways. But but these people who work in these hospices, they turn up again and again and again, and they just keep going. And, and they, they deserve huge credit. And one of the ways we can support them is by financially giving to the hospice movement. I know one of the things that has been highlighted in the discussion around assisted dying and assisted suicide is that although there are claims made about safeguards if we change the law to protect the vulnerable, the fact that society, perhaps because of what we were just saying about the, the way in which society is very individualistically focused at the moment, society does change, that there is a slippery slope I wonder if we can just unpack that thought for a moment, because if safeguards are going to be put in place, if the vulnerable are going to be protected, if people are, uh, who may be at risk of coercion are going to be protected, then, then what is the worry of what might happen in society? Because other places are making it work, aren't they, James? Well, th there's no such thing as a genuinely safe assisted suicide law or euthanasia law. And in every part of the world where assisted suicide is legal or euthanasia and assisted suicide are legal, um, what you see is you see that the two um, elements of the slippery slope working themselves out. So the first element is you see rising numbers of people who choose to have uh, an assisted suicide. Um, so take the Netherlands, for example. So Euthanasia was legalized in the Netherlands, uh, I think it was 2002, possibly even earlier. And in 2006, there were 1,923 cases. Uh, by 2017, so just over a decade later, that had risen to 6,585 cases. And you see the same pattern in Belgium, you see it in Canada, you see it in Switzerland. And the point here is that if you make something available, if you normalize something, which is what happens once you change the law and over time people get used to it, more and more people will choose it. More and more people will take advantage of it and not always for very good reasons. Yeah, but maybe those um, people actually do feel that, you know, it wasn't available before and now it is available. And actually this is a choice that I want to make, which, you know, they're, they're not being coerced into it, are they? 
but you can't prove that. And that's the point. So there are cases where coercion has happened. There are cases, uh, for example, in the recent debate in the House of Lords, uh, Lord McCall, who spoke very powerfully against uh, assisted suicide, uh, cited constituents, as it were, people who'd contacted him, who had had relatives murdered under the guise of uh, a entirely false story that had been concocted um, about an illness that their relative had, um, that the person then was helped to die. And the person guilty of all of this was actually the recipient then of an inheritance. And this has always been the concern that how can you ever truly know whether coercion has taken place, whether abuse has taken place. You talk about safeguards, and it's true that proponents talk up the value of safeguards very heavily. Um, but what you see, and this is the second element of the slippery slope, you see in places where the law has been changed to legalise assisted suicide and euthanasia, you see an incremental expansion of the categories, of the criteria, and you see certain safeguards disappearing. And it's all under the guise of let's make this whole process less burdensome, less bureaucratic. Let's not have uh, judges involved, for example. Let's remove their oversight. Let's not have an official waiting period. So in Oregon, for example, there was a time where if you requested an assisted suicide, there was a, a 15 day cooling off period after it had all been approved, just in case uh, you would change your mind. That now, seems reasonable. That After be, all, we get a cooling off period if we want some insurance. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Except that safeguards disappeared. Um, in Canada, safeguards have disappeared a mere five years after the law was changed in 2016, when euthanasia and assisted suicide was first legalised there. And I think that the, the fundamental point is that if our understanding of human nature is that it is corrupted by sin, then no amount of human safeguards can ever be truly safe. And that raises the frightening prospect that by changing the law, you are opening the door or opening, as one MP said in 2015, Pandora's box to a world where um, motive and uh, exploitation and coercion, things that are very, very difficult to sometimes spot, um, could be the factors that are behind someone choosing to have an assisted suicide. I mean, in Oregon, for example, some of the most recent evidence tells us that more than half of those who chose an assisted suicide said they were afraid of being a burden uh, yes. on their family, on yeah. carers, on loved ones. Now, how do you know that those people who are now dead because the law allowed them to commit suicide with medical assistance, how do you know that they were not exploited and therefore it wasn't their own voluntary free choice it was actually something they did under duress just not the kind of duress that you can you can read in a big mm. banner over their head i am doing this against my will that that's just not reality and so i think given that that is what's happened and and talked about expanding criteria in the netherlands which is one of the worst examples of what happens when a law like this is introduced you can have uh, euthanasia for children. You can have euthanasia in the Netherlands if you are tired of life. That is a, a genuine criteria category in the Netherlands for uh, being killed by a doctor, if you're just tired of life. Um, and, and it seems to me that if that is what has happened in other jurisdictions, then we cannot say with any degree of certainty, in fact, it would be arrogant to presume 
that the same thing wouldn't happen here. Yes. Um, and so that's the problem. Oh, it's one of the many problems with with changing the law and, and introducing assisted suicide legislation is you would not be able to control what happens next. At the same time, people are facing terrible deaths and people are facing incredible suffering. And whilst I agree with you, being tired of life is not a reason for your life to be ended. I mean, which of us at times are not tired of life? When people are dying of cancer, when people have just a few days to live and they are choking because a tumour is in their, their throat or they are in incredible pain because some part of their body is breaking down within them. The, the agonies that people are going through, and I mentioned it right at the beginning, the trauma that my mum and my family went through because palliative care didn't work for her, those are things that we we have to address. Don't we? And if we are going to say, and I come back to it again, if we're going to say no to assisted dying, how do we make sure that people who are being cared for in their own homes at the end of their life and are being cared for by carers who perhaps have very little experience of knowing what to do, um, how do we make sure that nobody slips through the net of good palliative care? I think it starts by making sure palliative care is widely and readily available. Um, I think it starts then by making sure there is enough investment in palliative care. And so that means there's a responsibility on all of us who want to promote palliative care to be making that case, whether that's writing to your MP uh, supporting any legislative effort. So, for example, um, the Health and Social Care Bill or the Health and Care Bill, I should call it, which is going through Parliament, big government bill to do with the NHS. There is an amendment that Baroness Finlay has tabled to that, which is to do with uh, requiring uh, palliative care to be provided in every postcode, every locality across the country. Um, get behind that. Write to members of the House of Lords. Urge them to support it. And I also think that when it comes to um, making sure palliative care is available, we, we need to recognise, and this is something Dr. Catherine Mannix speaks about. She's written a book, I think it's called With the End in Mind or When the End Comes, something like that. And we did a podcast with her here at CARE um, a few months ago, maybe a year ago. And what really struck me from what she said, and she was a former palliative care doctor, was that actually... In the overwhelming majority of cases now, because of improvements in palliative care and improvements in end-of-life care and medical technology, uh, thankfully, praise God for this, pain can be managed, symptoms can be controlled, so that that means the, the number of people in comparison to two decades ago, three, four, five decades ago, who are dying in extreme agony and pain is mercifully much, much smaller than it used to be. And if we continue to invest in palliative care, continue to see it develop, invest in research and treatment to allow it to develop, then it raises the really exciting prospect that you can reduce those terrible experiences more and more. I, I don't think you'll be able to stop them completely. No. And then... You have to step back, and and this is the this is the really this is where the rubber hits the road in this debate. I have to be really honest about this. If we cannot stop 
some terrible death experiences happening because it's a fallen world and we are not perfect and doctors are not perfect. You have to weigh that up against the impact of any law change to legalize assisted suicide and recognize that um, hard cases don't always make the best laws because if you, off the back of hard cases, change the law and legalize assisted suicide, the consequence in terms of pressure on the most vulnerable, uh, mm. pressure on the elderly, pressure on the frail, the, the possibility of coercion, the fundamental change in the doctor-patient relationship. This was something the former chief exec of care, Nola Leach, spoke about very powerfully, that, that when her husband Tony was dying, she knew that the doctors and nurses were there to do all they could to preserve his life and, and if needed, withdraw treatments to allow him to peacefully slip away, which is not the same thing as, as actively killing someone. Um, and that, that gave her trust in what they were saying to her, trust that, that they would not be saying anything other than um, helpful, true reflections on his condition because there was no sense that they were trying to hasten his demise or suggest that maybe an assisted suicide was, was the right thing to do. Um, and that, that gave her some confidence in the care that he was being, he was being provided. So I, I, I think that we can and we should and we must do far more when it comes to palliative care. And we need to recognise and be realistic, though, that it, it won't be possible to stop all bad deaths from happening. But you can continue the trajectory that we're now on, whereby, in, as I said already, in God's grace, palliative care provision is better. And the UK is a world leader when it comes to it. It's just we need more. And mm. so we need the government to take this more seriously. Um, and so that would be my, my plea. And, and to say that it's something care is lobbying for behind the scenes in the corridors of power. We, we have been and we will continue to promote the positive vision for what high quality end of life care looks like. There are many complexities to this debate. There are many different nuances that need to be explored and there are many conversations that need to be had. But I think many of us, when we look beyond the emotional reaction to someone in terrible pain and see the potential for those who are vulnerable or the quality of the change in relationship between doctors and medical professionals and those that they are caring for if we allowed for assisted suicide see the situations where people who given good palliative care are able to live that extra week that extra month that allows them to be reconciled to family members that they've not seen for years or to have those conversations that, had they been missed, break the hearts of those who are standing at the graveside. We need to understand that there is no simple answer to this, but there is an important element of what the faith community can bring to this debate. And it is the element that God has placed within us of valuing individuals and seeing the intrinsic value of giving those individuals the opportunity to express themselves and to live out to the end the fullness of their life.
You've been listening to UCB Life Issues. Don't forget you can listen to the other podcasts in this series wherever you download yours. James Mildred is from CARE. care care.org.uk is the website and you can find a whole host of resources about this and similar subjects there. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, James. Thank you for so eloquently and clearly expressing the issues around this difficult subject and joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul, and thank you for covering a really difficult and sensitive topic in such a helpful way. Thank you. It's UCB Live Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. Why not join me next week for another one? Ta-da. <laughs>